The Lord be with you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day that you have made. We ask now once again in the hearing of your word, you would speak to us, challenge us, encourage us, empower us to obey. We thank you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we began the narrative lectionary two weeks ago with the story of Noah and God's covenantal promise made visible in the sign of the rainbow to Noah and all of creation that never again would God bring catastrophic floods upon the earth. Then last week we heard about the promise God made to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And today in the story of Joseph, we see the beginnings of that promise being fulfilled. The story of Joseph takes up the last uh, dozen page, uh, chapters of Genesis, and our reading opens with the 17-year-old Joseph in Egypt about to begin the 13 most difficult years of his life. The reason he finds himself in this situation is that he comes from an incredibly dysfunctional family. You will recall that he grew up in a home with one father and four different mothers who between them gave birth to 12 sons, including Joseph. Joseph's birth mother, Rachel, happened to be the favorite wife among the four women. And his father also favored Jacob as a result, among his 12 sons. And rather than hiding that fact, his father Jacob flaunted it, giving Joseph and Joseph only a super fancy coat. We all know that that is not how you are supposed to parent. I can remember when um, Peter was in preschool or pre-kindergarten, his principal uh, would tell us that if he were ever to have a birthday party and invite anyone in his class, he had to invite everyone in the class, or at least, at the very least, all the boys. That, that's good policy, right? Kids are gonna grow up, they're gonna experience plenty of unfair rejections in their lives. And they don't need to be asking, why didn't I get invited when they're four or five years old? I'm sure all of us were taught at some point in our lives that if you don't have enough cookies for everybody, don't bring them. It's better not to bring them than to just have a few and not enough for everyone. Those of you who have more than one child, you know that you cannot give one child something without giving the other child something that is identical or at least somewhat equivalent unless of course you enjoy being around children screaming in complete meltdown. Jacob may have done many things well in his life, but he left much to be desired in terms of being a parent. He inflamed the sibling rivalry among his sons with his destructive power of favoritism. Jacob does this, I think, because that's, how he was raised. That's what he grew up with. If we look at his family history, this favoritism goes back multiple generations. 
Jacob's father favored his brother Esau, while Jacob himself was favored by his mother, Rebekah. As a result of that, his brother wanted to kill him at one point. And then Isaac also learned that favoritism from his father, Abraham, who favored, he and his father favored him over Ishmael. People who study family systems tell us that it is very difficult to break family patterns, good and bad. They tell us that kids who grew up, for example, with alcoholic parents are more likely to end up marrying an alcoholic, even though they know and have seen the destructive powers of such behavior. Kids who grow up in a home with domestic violence are more likely to marry a partner or be in a relationship that is violent, even though, again, they know that that is not a good situation to be in. It isn't destiny, but family dynamics exert such a powerful influence that even with great intentionality, it is difficult to break these cycles of dysfunction. I'm pretty sure that many of you experienced some form of favoritism growing up, especially if you come from more traditional Asian families which favor males and firstborn sons. Maybe you benefited from that. If you had an older brother, you probably resented the additional opportunities and responsibilities that he was given just because of his gender and birth order. Depending on your place in your family hierarchy over which you had no control, you may have suffered because you were made to feel less worthy or were overlooked or considered less valuable than other members of your family by your parents. I know that even as adults, those feelings can remain and shape your sense of well-being. The dangers and warning for us is that most of us recreate the environments that we grew up with, perhaps not as blatantly as Jacob did, but in more subtle and perhaps even in subconscious or unconscious ways. So it might seem extreme, but I think we can all at least understand why Joseph's brothers would be jealous of him and hate him and even take a step, this final step they took of wanting to get rid of him and murder him. And as they thought about killing him, Reuben, the oldest of the 12 brothers, as the firstborn, takes charge and convinces the others not to kill Joseph with their own hands and instead to toss him into a pit and let nature take its course. Reuben's suggestion is not one of kindness, nor is he taking responsibility as the eldest. He was actually scheming to rescue Joseph later so that he could bring him to his father and then gain some credit for having rescued the favorite of Jacob. He knows that he cannot be, even as a firstborn son, be the favorite of his father, but he wants to at least reaffirm his position as the firstborn and stay the second favorite of his father. That's the story of the boys in this family. These men, they're desperate for the approval and the love of their father. And that's a struggle I think, again, many of you know about. So that was the plan. But as they're eating and waiting for Joseph to die, 
some traitors happen to come along and another brother, Judah, convinces the others to sell him into slavery instead. Again, Judah is not motivated by mercy for his brother, but he wants to make sure that their hands are clean and and don't get dirty with the actual murder. And he figures they can also pick up a little extra cash on the side. And that's where our reading picks up this morning. Joseph is sold by his brothers and he's brought down to Egypt where an officer of Pharaoh, Potiphar, the captain of the guard, buys him. And we can wonder about what Joseph must have been thinking during this time. What went through his mind about being sold by his brothers? Maybe he was glad just to be alive or to be getting away from them. Maybe he fantasized about taking revenge. Or maybe he bitterly wept as he thought about the earlier dreams of grandeur he had about his brothers bowing down to him. It could not have been an easy adjustment for Joseph in Egypt. So I think it can be a little misleading when we read immediately after his arrival in Egypt in verse 2 that the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. That is a summary of what happened. It is not what happened overnight. And it did not happen easily. He became a successful man. But it took up to perhaps 11 years for him to get to that point. And even though he's successful, he's still a slave. He's as successful as a slave can be. It must have been incredibly difficult. Imagine he's in a different country, a different language, different customs. I know at least a few of you came to this country as teenagers, and I'm sure you can recall the challenges of adapting and trying to fit in and finding your way. But you probably at least had some family to support you. But Joseph was all alone, entirely alone. And even though his brothers hated him, he at least grew up in a relatively easy life, right? Pampered by a father who favored him and loved him. And now he's just another slave trying to learn Egyptian, learn the routines of the house, and maybe just trying to survive. And in time, he does succeed. It doesn't hurt, as verse 6 tells us, that he was handsome in form and appearance. I like the way the, the King James Version, the older King James Version, spiritualizes it a bit and says that Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. The NIV translation is a little more blunt, and it says he was well-built and handsome. And then what follows, you know, sounds like the latest script for a Netflix drama limited series for mature audiences only. (laughs) A young, handsome man goes to work for a rich and powerful family. The mistress of the house takes an interest in him and tries to seduce him. When he refuses her advances, she falsely accuses him of sexual assault and he is sent to prison. You know, I've always been taught this story in Sunday school and as a youth, um, that this is a story about Joseph being sexually tempted and about how Joseph resists such temptation by literally running away and that faced with the same situation, I ought to do the same. That was a typical sermon that I heard growing up. It's often given to uh, as a moral lesson for young men on how to handle themselves 
in uh, sexually compromising or uh, tempting situations. It gets attached to passages like from the Apostle Paul, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. Right? It's a good fit. Flee from sexual immorality. And, and by implication, it's men who are tempted and women who are doing the tempting. That was the subtext and the message I heard. Certainly, Joseph is to be commended for his actions, his integrity. But I want you to notice that the story is not really about Joseph being sexually tempted, as it is that he's been put in an impossible situation. Potiphar's wife basically commands him to sleep with her. I mean, she can do that. She's the boss's wife, and he's a slave. He has no rights. As we have been made more aware in recent years through the Me Too movement and with examples of people like Harvey Weinstein and others, the abuse of power is at the root of much of sexual violence. If the genders were flipped in this story, think about it this way. If the story was told with the genders flipped, none of us would be thinking that Josephine was being sexually tempted in this story, right? but rather she was in this impossible situation and being coerced into sex by her boss. This is not a work situation with one coworker, you know, attracted to another. The power imbalance here gives Joseph no real options. There's no HR to report to. He can't request transfer to another office. He can't resign or quit his job. He does not have good choices. So at first, he tries to reason with her. He tells her, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has under my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am. I have authority here. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. So how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He reminds her that he is a slave, but that he still has authority in the house and maybe suggesting that he does not have to obey her. He tells her that he has the trust of his master, which he does not want to break. As we know, trust takes decades to build and can be broken so quickly with just one little misstep. He lifts up the sanctity of marriage and reminds her, you are his wife. And finally states that to sleep with her would be a great wickedness and a sin against God. And we see here the faith that is rooting his convictions and decisions. It is a sin against God, he says. She does not listen. She is not persuaded. And she continues to harass him. And so Joseph resorts next to avoiding her as much as possible as his job will allow, but one day finds himself alone in the house with her. She grabs him by his shirt and commands him once more to sleep with her. And he flees half naked out of the house, leaving his shirt behind. For the second time in his life, a garment has been used against Joseph. And look at how shrewdly she forces Potiphar, her husband, to make a decision against Joseph. She forces his hand. First, she calls the men of her household and insinuates that her husband is partly to blame. She says, see, 
he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. It, it, I can't help but hear like the kinds of 911 calls these days, right? She's throwing a little bit of, hey, let's throw in a little racism here too, right? She's uniting her entire household. This Hebrew has come into this Egyptian household to mock us. We all are being threatened by this. And then when her husband comes home, she tells the story, but she just alters it just enough to get at him. Joseph is not just a Hebrew, but he's a Hebrew slave. Hey, aren't you the boss? What are you going to do about this? This Hebrew servant whom you brought into the house, again, putting the responsibility on him. She tells him, it's your fault, and I'm the victim, your wife. I'm the lone victim. As in English, her accusation, he came into me, insinuates a sexual act, which in this context is the crime of rape. Verse 20, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now it's unclear what Egyptian laws were at this time, but sexual assault will later uh, be punishable by death under Mosaic law. So when it says that his anger was kindled, the fact that Joseph is not immediately executed suggests that perhaps the master's anger is not directed entirely, if at all, toward Joseph. Maybe he is aware of what was going on behind his back. We're told earlier that he concerned himself with nothing except for what he ate. Maybe that's literally true. Maybe he wasn't paying any attention to his wife. So maybe he's just angry with her because she's outmaneuvered him and put him in this position where he's forced to accept her word against the words of a mere slave. Maybe he's just really angry because he's losing his best employee. He's losing his best worker who has brought him nothing but profit. And so maybe putting him in prison is a way of recognizing that he is not entirely at fault. It's all unfair, isn't it? Joseph worked really hard. He overcame all the challenges of being an immigrant all alone in a new country. He did the right thing. He honored his boss. He kept his integrity. And his reward is imprisonment. Even worse, this part of Joseph's story is bookended by God's favor. By God's favor. When Joseph first goes to Egypt, we're told that the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And then after Joseph is thrown into prison, we are told again, but the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. He's favored by God and he ends up unjustly in prison. Potiphar and the jailer, they both recognized that God was with Joseph, that God was favoring this guy, but they still put him in prison. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know that Joseph will eventually get out, that this injustice will be corrected. But even, at this, but even surrounded by 
God's favor, Joseph is going to have to spend at least the next two years of his life in prison. And even though some have said it's a, you know, it was a nice prison because it's the king's prison, Psalm 105 reminds us that Joseph's feet were hurt with fetters and his neck was put in a collar of iron. I'm sure Joseph was wondering what any of us would be wondering. I did the right thing. I followed God. I obeyed. Why am I in prison? Why is this happening to me? God gives him no answer. And God does not simply make the injustice go away. Instead, Joseph must endure this injustice, this suffering, with only the knowledge of his own innocence and perhaps the memories of the promises that God had made to him and his family earlier. And sometimes that's all we have too. What Joseph does not know, cannot know, is that he needs to be in prison for now so that in a couple years, he can meet the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh so that he can then meet Pharaoh, so that he can then interpret Pharaoh's dreams and then lay out a plan to overcome a famine that is coming to save the entire world. We know that's how it's going to turn out, but he doesn't know that, not at this time. All he knows is that he's in prison for a crime he did not commit and that he might spend the rest of his life unfairly behind bars. I know that um, for many of you, that there were probably weeks during this pandemic where you felt you were imprisoned in your own homes. I know you love your family and your kids, but sometimes it's hard being with them all the time. Some of you may feel like you're stuck in your careers or jobs. Others of you may feel as though your marriage or your other significant relationships are stagnating and you're not that optimistic about things improving. Still others of you may have had dreams about your life and they've fallen short. I'm sure Joseph was wondering whether prison was as good as life is going to get. But the fact that the jailer saw God's favor upon him tells me that Joseph did not despair even in prison. The jailer saw a young man who did not complain, who was competent, who carried himself with dignity and integrity. He demonstrated in his behavior that God was with him and others noticed it, right? The jailer recognized God's favor was upon him. How does he recognize that? It's not, you know, that he had some halo over his head. He saw the way that he was living his life, even in prison. Even in prison, Joseph had the strength and the faith of knowing that God was with him. The Apostle Paul told the Philippians, that he had learned in whatever situation he's in to be content, whatever situation to be content. And he wrote those words while he's in prison. He wrote, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret 
of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I learned this. Why? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things. Joseph learned that well. I can face all circumstances, including this injustice, because God is with me. That's the promise that is never going to change. It's the same for us. Whatever trials you might be going through, whatever unfairness you might be experiencing right now, you can cling to this promise. Let the favor of God shine through in your life. Let the presence of the spirit of God sustain and strengthen you. God is with you. And God is working. He's working all things out ultimately for good. And even though we might not see it or won't be able to see it for years later, that's what faith is for, to, to trust that, that God is working this out for good. I hope it's also clear that the reason that Joseph is in this situation, this unjust situation, is not because God wants to punish him, not because God wants to teach him a lesson for being a, a brat when he was a younger kid, anything like that. It's not that God is powerless to stop injustice. Joseph is in prison because of human sinfulness. He's there because of his father's favoritism, his brother's jealousy, his mistress's false accusation, and his master's questionable judgment. God allows all of this to play out, but God remains in control. We often have to suffer the consequences of our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of those around us whether they be our families, our teachers, our employers. But God continues to be with us. And in spite of all the evil and wickedness that is all around us, that is being done to us, God's desire is always to bless the world. Not just you, not just the people who deserve it, but to bless the entire world. In Joseph's story, we see God is still working out his plans, even though it may not look like it at this particular moment, to bless all the families of the earth. All the families of the earth, right? God could have just blessed Joseph. You worked hard. You deserve it. I'm going to bless you. Or maybe God could have just picked out some of the people that were more deserving, or just bless Joseph's immediate family. But look what God does. Because God is with Joseph, Potiphar's house prospers. From the time that he was made overseer in the house, everything in Potiphar's house prospers. And later when he's in jail, the entire prison system prospers because of his presence. It's like, Blessing cannot be isolated. When God blesses you, it cannot be contained. It leaks. As, jo as Jesus said, God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. There are many ways that God can bless through us. But let me just close with this. I think... Perhaps the simplest and most ordinary way that God can bless the world through you 
as he does here through Joseph, is what some have called a ministry of competence. A ministry of competence. Joseph was an incredible household manager. His bosses could entrust him with running the entire operation. No one had to worry about anything. I mean, Potiphar only had to worry about what's for dinner. Can you imagine having people under you that are so good at their jobs that that's the only question you have every day? What's for dinner? I was going to say that's a little bit like my life, but (laughs) same for the jailer. Same for the jailer. Joseph, it's clear, has this gift of administration. He has this gift of administration. That's how he blesses the world. That's how he blesses his employers, by doing great work. I think that's the ordinary way that God blesses the world through us, through Christians. That's why you should study hard in school. That's why you should do your best in your jobs. Not so that you can get academic awards and promotions and raises. I mean, those are all good things and nice. You can bless others through your ministry of competence. I know that uh, some of you um, have been watching the K-drama hospital playlist. Um, My wife and I have been enjoying that. Um, It's about a group of doctors. And actually it's about a group of impossibly talented, dedicated, compassionate, and wise surgeons. You know, I watched it with my wife and I mostly watched it thinking and saying, this is impossible. There are no doctors or hospitals like this, right? If your expectation when you go to a hospital or visit a doctor is based on this K-drama, you are going to be sadly, sadly disappointed. But as you watch it, you think, yeah, why can't it be like that? Why can't it be like that? I mean, recently it took me two weeks just to get the hospital to call me to make an appointment. And I'm thinking, why can't it be like this? Wouldn't it be great if you could just call a doctor and he calls you back right away? Him, not an answering machine. And then he promises to do everything in his power to get you every help you need. Speaks to you with wisdom beyond his years. Empathizes with your pain. And on top of all that, he just happens to be the best surgeon in that field for your need right now. Why can't we have that expectation? Not just of doctors, but of every interaction, every profession that we interact with. Now, of course, we can't all be the best at our jobs in the world or anything like that. But there's no reason, there's no reason why we cannot be more compassionate. There's no reason why we cannot be filled with the spirit, the fruits of the spirit, and to go about our work with joy and with kindness and goodness. Don't you want to know that if you need surgery, that your surgeon is going to be competent? I mean, it's nice if he'll pray for you, right? But wouldn't you rather make sure that he knows what he's doing in the surgery? to have that level of competence? Don't you want to take your car to your your mechanic? And again, maybe it's nice if he prays for you, but 
Don't you want him to be able to fix your car quickly at a reasonable price? Whenever you ask someone to do something, don't you want to have the confidence that they'll do it well, that they'll keep their word? That's the ministry of competence. You and I have that responsibility to the world, to the world. You can bless the world, all the families of the earth, through a ministry of competence. God has gifted you to bless the world. God's favor is upon you to bless all the families of the world. Let that be your motivation, whether in your work or at school, because this is the way that God has designed the world. How does God heal the sick? Not by magic, but by competent doctors and nurses. How does God feed the world? He tried once with manna, but instead now he gifts and calls different people to the task of farming, of selling and buying and cooking and all all that stuff. The Christian baker blesses the world, not by making donuts in the shape of crosses, but by making good donuts that taste good. By all means, we have to preach the gospel. We have the ministry of the gospel. We cannot shirk, no question. But we also can bless the world through more ordinary means, through this ministry of competence as we see here in the life of Joseph. We can bless the world by doing our work well. Even in unfair situations, you can still act with integrity and competence as Joseph does here in prison. And so that's my challenge to you, to do your work with renewed joy and diligence and bless the world. Bless the world. Bless all the families of the world, especially now when the world seems like it is in so much need of blessing. Please pray with me. God, you are always with us. In all, in every circumstance, you are with us. You are with us in our messed up families. You are with us in our successes. And you are with us in our discouragements. Help us to know that, that you are with us. That empowered by that memory, that knowledge of your presence and your promises, lead us to be an ever more faithful people to bless the world in the tasks that you have set before us. Help us to be your people through whom you bless all the families of the earth. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.